Hello everyone, I'm Dorothy Livingston, a consultant at Herbert Smith Freehills, and I'm joined by my colleague Sahil Khan for this short pre-recorded webinar, which is an introduction to retained EU law. We will be doing a more in-depth look at this subject for those who work daily with this new category of law. But this is a, an overview, which will also be available as a podcast for those who prefer to do their learning that way. I'll talk about the genesis and types of retained EU law and how to inter approach its interpretation. And then Sahel will talk about how the Brexit legislation affects cases where either retained EU law or EU law as it is um, before um, the end of this year um, is in issue before the English courts. Before plunging into the subject, I just remind you of the timetable. The UK left the EU in January 2020 with a transition period uh, um, or implementation period, as it's called in English law, uh, in which EU law continues to apply uh, until the end of the year when we have IP com completion day on the 31st of uh, this year of December this year. And at that point, uh, EU law will cease to apply uh, subject to some limited uh, exceptions. So 2021 uh, will be um, an interesting new lands legal landscape uh, for English lawyers. So retained EU law, why do we need to have it? Well, over 40% of our um, uh, UK law is either domestic law, which is based on the requirements of EU treaties or directives, or consists of directly effective provisions of EU treaties and regulations, which don't need any domestic law equivalents. So when EU law ceases to apply at the end of 2020, the UK will still need law in that covering many of those areas, which make up 40% of our law, um, which are currently based on EU requirements or covered by directly effective EU law. So to ensure continuity, uh, while the UK goes through the major process of reviewing that law and changing it into purely domestic law, which is expected to take place many, many years, uh, it will um, uh, adopt much EU law or EU-inspired law uh, as uh, EU-retained EU-law, retained EU law, um, which falls into two main classes, EU-derived and EU-directly-effective law. Um, this is done by the European Union Withdrawal Act uh, 2018, which I'll refer to as the Withdrawal Act. So I must say this uh, section of the overview can only scratch the surface and uh, those who are using retained EU law uh, would benefit from our more detailed um, talk webinar, which is yet to come. Turning to the classes of retained EU law, there are two main classes uh, which I will uh, describe, uh, but there are five classes altogether and I'll go on to deal with the other three. Uh, the first one is EU-derived domestic legislation. That's EU law already implemented into domestic law 
of the United Kingdom or one of its parts. Uh, in Scotland, for example, it might be a law that only applies in Scotland. Um, in England, it will be law generally made by the Westminster Parliament, um, uh, some of which will apply to the whole of the United Kingdom and some of it only to parts of the United Kingdom. Uh, it may be primary law or statutory instruments, uh, but the most common form of uh, EU-derived domestic legislation, statutory instruments made under Section 2 of the European Communities Act 1972. And they would have fallen away on the repeal of that act if they had not been specifically preserved by the Withdrawal Act. These are mostly laws which implement uh, EU directives, occasionally EU treaty requirements. Uh, in addition, um, there is primary legislation uh, and the use of powers under other statutes uh, where that is a more convenient way to for the UK to have implemented its uh, EU law in accordance with its uh, duties as a member state of the EU. And there is an odd category of retained EU law, which consists of law which was created for completely other purposes, but which happened to be exactly what the EU wanted done. So it didn't need changing uh, when the EU produced a piece of harmonising legislation, usually in the form of a directive, asking uh, member states like the UK, as it was, uh, to harmonise their laws. Um, and that's a rather odd category, which you wouldn't really expect to find. Uh, an example is the um, parts of the Banking Act 2009, uh, which in fact inspired a later EU directive on uh, bank reconstruction and redevelopment. Moving to the other main category, which is retained direct EU law, that is the provisions of EU treaties and regulations which are directly effective in EU member states without any need for domestic implementing legislation. These can produce rights and obligations between citizens in those states and businesses in those states, um, and the courts must uh, apply them. But there is no need for anything domestic um, uh, unless the member state particularly uh, wants to uh, do something under domestic law. It will always be overridden by the requirements of directly effective EU law. Um, it's nothing like as large a category as the previous one, but it's very important. Uh, and it's been increasingly used, for example, in financial regulation uh, in um, regulations such as EMEA, uh, which is the European Market Infrastructure Regulation, uh, rather than directives, so that when that happens, there is no equivalent domestic law. And it's very important that we preserve um, the European law, uh, usually with some changes. It's often necessary, to, for example, to change um, the regulatory body who will administer the relevant law from, say, the European Commission to, say, the Financial Conduct Authority. Um, so moving on from those first two classes, let's look at some of the uh, more obscure classes of retained EU law. Um, the first one is the savings under Section 4 of the Withdrawal Act for rights, obligations, etc., under 
Section 2.1 of the European Communities Act 1972, which are recognised under domestic law, but which are not retained direct EU law or arise under a directive. So they don't become EU derived domestic law, couldn't have ever become that. Now, it's not entirely clear what exactly that's meant to cover. Uh, there's been a bit of legislation which tried to use this particular category of, of, of law, um, but most of that has been repealed because it was very difficult to understand uh, and there was a lot of debate about whether it did what was required. Um, so it's much easier to change it to something which clearly did what was required. Um, but um, it could refer to the right to bring claims in UK courts based on EU laws applied before IP completion date, um, which would be a right of the sort that was be intended to be preserved. Um, it could be the retention of general principles of EU law when they're established by the CJEU rather than the EU treaties or legislation, although those would also potentially be retained EU case law, which is dealt with specifically in the Act. Uh, so it's difficult to say quite what in, was intended to be uh, covered. Um, uh, and I think uh, the courts will be kept busy on that particular head and what it might happen to mean. Turning to retained case law, that's got two subcategories. Well, first, pre-IP completion date decisions of the Court of Justice of the European Union, which are binding on the courts of member states. Um, and these relevant, where there are relevant decisions, these will prescribe, for example, the interpretation and application of EU law uh, and may be relevant to the application interpretation of retained EU law based on um, that law. Um, and then there will be also pre-completion day domestic decisions, say taken by our um, High Court or Court of Appeal or Supreme Court uh, or the Scottish uh, senior courts, uh, which dealt with issues of interpretation of EU law, um, but whether the, the issue didn't ever go to the um, European court for a review or uh, an, a, another decision, so that the only law that exists there interpreting this EU law is domestic law. And both those categories are, are, are important. Um, it's quite clear that EU case law will uh, can be overruled by um, primary legislation and also by uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, and it's possible that the uh, number of courts, time type of courts that can overrule retained EU case law will be enlarged by legislation under the uh, Withdrawal Act as recently amended. Uh, but it, it's, we're waiting for the uh, end of a consultation on that um, and um, we don't yet know uh, what, whether there will be a change there or not. Um, to the extent that the, there are relevant decisions taken by the European Court after um, the date of withdrawal, um, after IP completion date, um, then those um, decisions can be obviously referred to just like any other foreign court decision which may be illuminating, uh, but in no way is they binding on the courts. Um, 
on the other hand, retain domestic case law, uh, unless there are some special rules introduced, is subject to the usual rules of precedent for decisions by UK courts and tribunals, uh, and would be uh, overruled in accordance with it. So, uh, moving on to the last, final, fifth retained class of retained EU law, that is the retained general principles of EU law. Now, these are principles of universal application derived from uh, EU principles. They include, for example, the principle of proportionality in administrative law, uh, although there may be a domestic equivalent to this, uh, and the EU approach to legal professional privilege, which has adopted the rules most common in the EU and is therefore essentially the civil law, not the common law model for legal professional privilege. Now, the legislation there um, imposes a number of limitations on reliance on retained general EU principles um, and in relation to pre-IP completion day matters, general principles of EU law after IP completion date in cases before the UK courts. And so I will say a little bit more about that. Finally, I have one last topic, which is the question of how you might interpret retained EU law. And again, this may vary according to the class of law you're dealing with. Uh, first of all, domestic legislation is essentially to be interpreted just like any other UK statute or statutory instrument. Um, it is clear that from the Withdrawal Act that underlying directives will have no status as retained EU law. And it, but it isn't entirely clear whether they can or cannot be referred to to resolve ambiguities of interpretation, uh, particularly if there is um, ex existing um, CJEU case law. But it's possible the meaning of these laws may change, um, uh, particularly if domestic rules of interpretation, which are not purposive, but turn on the precise language used, are applied to language which was written for purpose of interpretation according to EU uh, law principles. Uh, so that may be a fruitful area uh, for litigation. Uh, the second class uh, retained EU direct law is a new thing uh, and a good deal will depend on how the courts decide to approach this new category of law. For example, will recitals of regulations be used to resolve ambiguities as uh, they would be currently, uh, uh, will a purpose of interpretation uh, be applied, uh, which uh, is the way that they were written to be read. So again, potential areas of, of uh, uncertainty and dispute. Uh, retained case law should be applied according to the principles under which it was made, whether it was CJU or domestic, where there would be obviously differences in, in, in how you deal with it. Um, uh, but it will be subject to the ability of certain UK courts and tribunals to depart from uh, retained EU case law. Um, and uh, over time, UK courts will produce new precedents which are binding on lower courts and tribunals. Finally, uh, as I said earlier, retained general principles of EU law are subject to restrictions on their use in disputes, uh, which may fairly rapidly make them an irrelevance. 
And with that, I'll hand over to Sahil, who'll say a little bit more about that topic. Thank you. Um, thanks, Dorothy. Um, so I'm going to take a few minutes now to talk about the causes of action based on retained EU law. Um, as a self-evident, uh, the basis on which challenges can be brought uh, will change after IP completion day, depending on what is retained EU law. Uh, now, some causes of action will vanish, whilst, whilst some will continue to stay relevant. The most prominent example of this is the European Charter of Fundamental Rights which will no longer form a part of retained EU law, and therefore no action can be founded on it in relation to actions after IP completion day. Now, this is very clear on the face of the Withdrawal Act, as this is explicitly set out in Section 5.4. Um, on the other hand, the European Convention of Human Rights is not a EU treaty. It's an international treaty signed by member states, um, and the ECHR will therefore remain binding in the UK for the time being. Now, this is a slightly contentious area because the UK Human Rights Act, uh, which incorporates the ECHR into domestic law, um, may yet be uh, repealed or, or, or substantially changed by the present government in line with their manifesto commitments. And it therefore remains to be seen how the ECHR will be treated going forward. Um, the next point that I wanted to raise was about general principles of EU law. Now, there can be no, follow, after IP completion day, there can be no cause of action which is based on a general principle of EU law. And Dorothy uh, touched on this a little while ago. Um, subject to some very specific time-limited preservations in Schedule 8 of the Withdrawal Act. Um, now, there's very little ambiguity over this, uh, but it is worth noting uh, that as far as we can tell, uh, this does not seem to exclude any reliance on these general principles where a case is brought pursuant to another cause of action. Now, in terms of challenges against the government, um, the Withdrawal Act also generally excludes any rights to damages in accordance with the rule in the Frankovich case and subsequent other relevant cases. Um, now, just as a refresher, the, the, the Frankovich rule provides for a cause of action uh, in damages against a member state uh, for failure to either implement EU law or for a breach of EU law. Uh, so post-IP completion day, this will be abolished, subject again to some specific savings in, in Schedule 8. However, as far as I understand it, the rule does not seem to affect any retained statutory rights to claim damages in respect of breaches of retained EU law. Uh, so, for example, if we were to take a, a, a case of public procurement uh, under the Public Contracts Regulations 2015, regulations 97 and 98 of those regulations set out a specific damages regime, which would still continue to apply. It's therefore going to be quite important for prospective claimants to consider the provision of any retained, re relevant retained EU law to see if a specific damages regime um, operates um, un un under, those specific, uh, under that specific bit of retained EU law. And finally, as Dorothy mentioned earlier, um, the Supreme Court, and, and depending on the results of uh, the consultation that's ongoing, possibly some other courts and tribunals, uh, they, they may choose to disapply retained EU, EU case law thereby producing a different results. Now, this may also happen if uh, EU-derived legislation is interpreted strictly uh, without regard to the underlying EU law, which is more purposive in nature. Um, all of this will have a knock-on effect in terms of the causes of action uh, that will be available based on retained EU law. The next question, therefore, just is what challenges can actually be brought? Um, now, the first thing to note is that domestic law, which becomes retained EU law, 
will continue to be classified as either primary or secondary legislation as relevant. So that doesn't that doesn't change. Um, now, primary legislation will be capable of being challenged only on the basis that it contravenes another provision of retained EU law, um, which would have benefited from the principle of supremacy. However, secondary legislation will not only be able to be challenged on those grounds, but also on general public law grounds, as with any other uh, secondary legislation. Uh, the big area of challenges we see it uh, is likely to be uh, in terms of modifications made to retain the EU law by ministers using certain powers under the Withdrawal Act. Um, so to take a step back, Section 8 of the Withdrawal Act confers broad powers on ministers to amend retain the EU law to ensure that it operates effectively or to remedy any deficiency within it. Now, the word deficiency and, and effectively um, are both fairly vague and in, in theory could be interpreted quite broadly. Um, and this power under the Withdrawal Act is quite a significant power as these powers could be used to amend retained EU law in ways that affect a number of sectors and a number of businesses. So you could have regulations impacting the pharmaceutical sector, for example, that are modified using these powers. Um, now, there have already been a couple of early state challenges uh, to some of these, uh, to some ministerial decisions using uh, the powers under Section 8. Um, in one such challenge, it was argued that the government was using Section 8 powers to significantly alter certain environmental regulations rather than simply remedying a deficiency, which is what uh, Section 8 says it can do. Now, the government has said that the wording that it did add into those certain environmental regulations was just simply to ensure that the regulations operated smoothly after exit day. Um, and as it turned out, in that judicial review, uh, the claimant was refused permission to apply because the challenge was seen as premature. However, the judge acknowledged that challenges could be brought against specific decisions of the government in the future that demonstrated that they were clearly exceeding those powers. Now, this leads to interesting questions of when challenges uh, should be brought and, and that, that may well lead to some strategic questions about when to initiate claims. Uh, but that's a discussion for another time. Um, there's only one other point that I want to cover, uh, which is uh, on transitional procedures. And there's three headline points in that respect. First, which is quite a log logical and sensible position, pending cases before either level of the CJEU including references from the UK courts and pending administrative proceedings. So, for example, you may have competition law proceedings or merger control proceedings will continue and will continue oh, and, and, will, and will be completed just as if the UK were in the EU. And now the same applies to any subsequent levels of appeals within those proceedings or those cases. Um, any decisions, therefore, will be binding on the parties and will be able to be enforced in the UK. Now, this seems like a pragmatic and logical position. But the other, other transitional provisions also exist. So, for example, another transitional provision is in relation to appeals about the UK's application on the, its agreement on the rights of EU citizens. Now, this will stay in place for eight years. And the other big political one um, is the application of EU law uh, as required by the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, and those and those, and those provisions will apply, uh, will continue to operate for an indefinite duration. Well, practically, what this all means is that in, in these cases, relevant EU law will apply without any of the restrictions or possible interpretational changes 
that exists for retained EU law. And specifically, in the case of, in, in relation to the Northern Ireland Protocol, this will be a dynamic process. So what that means is that EU law passed after IP completion day will continue to stay relevant. This is an addition uh, to what you've already been uh, listening to, uh, to cover um, the fact that government, just after we had made this recording, uh, published the results of its consultation on which courts uh, would be able to change um, EU case law um, in cases that came before them after the end of 2020. Uh, in which issues about the interpretation of retained EU law uh, were in issue. Uh, so uh, I'm going to explain those points uh, and then uh, wrap up the uh, recording. Uh, the um, consultation proposed two alternative ways in which uh, the right to uh, depart from retained EU case law uh, could be changed. Uh, one was uh, where the uh, right to change the law was extended to appellate courts, and one was where it was extended to a much wider range of courts. Uh, the government has decided to extend um, the right to depart from retained EU case law um, to appellate courts only. Uh, and those courts are the Court of Appeal in England and Wales, the inner house of the Court of Session in Scotland, which is the equivalent uh, court, the Court of Appeal in Northern Ireland, uh, and then a series of uh, more specialist jurisdictions, uh, including uh, the Lands Valuation Appeal Court um, and the Court for Hearing Appeals under the Representation of the People Act, uh, which may be a court of first instance. Um, the result of that is that there is going to be a wider prospect of uh, departures uh, from the uh, CJEU decisions uh, predating uh, the end of this year, uh, which would otherwise be binding on those courts. Uh, this may save money in some cases, uh, making it unnecessary to have a uh, further appeal uh, uh, to the Supreme Court uh, to settle the issue, um, uh, but also plays a little bit of um, uh, mischief with the standard uh, form um, rules on precedent, when normally the Court of Appeal, for example, would be bound by its own decisions. Uh, it is, however, I think a, a manageable um, way of dealing with, uh, with the issue. Uh, and um, it's to be welcomed that the um, government did not decide to go for the much wider range of, of courts, which would have uh, played havoc uh, with our existing systems of precedent. So these provisions will apply to the application of retained EU case law to retained EU law, insofar as that retained EU law is unmodified or to the extent modified it's still appropriate to apply EU law. And a decision taken by any of these courts after the end of 2020 um, can depart from retained EU case law, that's case law that existed um, before the end of 2020, 
in the form of a decision by these uh, one of the uh, parts of the uh, European Court of Justice. Once a decision has been taken, whether it um, actually on a point, whether it holds um, the decision or um, decides to depart from it, then that will be binding in accordance with the normal rules of precedent that apply in the relevant part of the uh, United Kingdom. Uh, so this is a relatively minor change, um, but important for those engaged in litigation where issues of uh, uh, CJEU law uh, will be in, uh, in issue. Uh, it's worth rem remembering that these provisions will not apply to the extent that the withdrawal agreement requires the application of EU law in the UK after end 2020. That will be to a number of specific transitional uh, cases, uh, for example, and to cases um, where um, there are particular rights to um, refer matters to the European Court which extend after the end of 2020, for example, in the field of citizens' rights um, and uh, in relation to the Northern Ireland Protocol. Having brought you up to, uh, to date on that um, development, um, uh, I now just want to uh, close by uh, reminding you that we will have uh, a much more detailed uh, webinar on retained EU law, which is a much more complex subject than we've been able to deal with uh, fully in this overview. Um, this overview is part of a series of short webinars and podcasts dealing with areas of law where end 2020 will bring important changes as the UK's transition from being a member state of the EU is completed. Further details are available on our website and signing up to our Beyond Brexit blog provides an easy way to receive news on key developments and access to our materials. Uh, rather smartly, we call that Brexit notes. Uh, and I think you will be able to find it easily on our website. Thank you for listening, um, and I hope you found this useful. <laughs>